Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men! For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witnessed against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, 
from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then, of course, closer to home, uh, it is probably important to say that it's been a difficult couple of weeks, I think, here in South Africa. Uh, I think it's been a struggle. I think we've seen racial tensions rising to the surface again. I think, once again, we have to say that our leaders right across the spectrum have been failing us and uh, continue to fail us. And I think we need to do what the church is called to do at a time like this, and we need to pray. So please, will you join me in prayer? Father, we bring our country to you once again, knowing just how merciful you have been to us over the years, over the decades, over the centuries. You led us out of bondage into freedom. You have kept us from descending into total bloodshed and chaos. Who knows how many times. Uh, We know that you have used the prayers of the saints to do these things, Father. And so we ask that you use our prayers now. Please have mercy on our land. Restrain hatred and sin and wickedness. Lord, please bring healing and wholeness and unity. And Father, use your church in a special way to do these things. Make us into true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make us into agents of your peace, ambassadors of reconciliation. Help us to be those who love our enemies. Help us to be a community, a family, known by their love. Father, we pray that you'd heal us from the inside out by the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that we might be truly united, united by his precious blood. Help us, Father, to be an alternative to a culture that is constantly threatening to disintegrate. Let us be a beacon of hope and light. For Christ's sake, for your glory and for our good. Amen. As you know, we've spent the past five weeks exploring discipleship. Um, It's an important series for us. We, We want to be a church where... The culture, our first instinct is to know that I'm here, I exist to help this sister on my left and this brother on my right take a step closer to Jesus, wherever they are in their walk with him. And so we've looked at the what, the why, the how, the who of following Jesus. To end the series, we wanted to approach the whole thing from a slightly different angle. Uh, We wanted to try and understand discipleship by understanding what it is not. So what would be the opposite of discipleship? What would be the opposite of following Jesus? Someone in the peanut gallery says not following him. Yes, fair enough. But what does that look like? What does it actually look like? I think we get a pretty good picture in that well-known parable. It will be known to many of us, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, Two ways in that parable to not follow Jesus. In the story, just in case you're not familiar with it, or in case you need a refresher, in the story there are two sons. 
Let's call them the prodigal and the hypocrite. On the face of it, they seem very different. But actually, in reality, they want exactly the same thing out of life. They want their father's inheritance. That's what they're after. They go about it in very different ways. They have very different strategies, but that's what they want. Their father's inheritance. The prodigal demands the inheritance now. And once he has his hands on it, he takes it into a faraway country and he blows it in wild living. He leaves home and he blows the inheritance. The hypocrite, different strategy. He plays the long game. He labors for his father year after year so that his father will be indebted to him. So that his father will owe him the inheritance. His father will be locked in. At least that's how he thinks about it. In the end of the story, the prodigal comes to his senses. He realizes his sin and he goes home in the hope of just getting a job on his father's farm. That's all he wants. Entry-level laborer. That's all he's after. And he knows it's a long shot given how he has treated his father. But it's better than eating pig food. The big shock in the story is in how the father responds to his wayward son. He runs to meet him. He embraces him. He welcomes him. He clothes him in royal clothing. Puts the ring on his finger. He lays on a party, a celebration to receive his son home. By the end of the story, the prodigal is not a servant or a laborer. The prodigal is a son with full rights to the inheritance. The fate of the hypocrite is not so certain. The story ends, the final scene in the story is with the father outside begging his son to come inside and join the celebrations, join the festivities, but he won't. He's angry, he's bitter, because his whole plan has been ruined. How can he earn the inheritance if his father is just giving it away. The way Jesus tells the story, it seems as though the hypocrite is in a much more dangerous, precarious position than the prodigal. While the prodigal is rejecting the father, at least he knows he's doing it. The hypocrite doesn't even know he's doing exactly the same thing, only in a different way. The hypocrite is in serious danger. The opposite of a disciple is either a prodigal or a hypocrite. But it seems to us, as you read through the Gospels, it seems Jesus himself is far more worried about the hypocrite than he is about the prodigal. And so hypocrite, that's where we're going to focus this morning. Because hypocrisy is hidden by nature, we're going to have to do some work at being able to recognize it, being able to diagnose it, and then only can we look for the cure. So from Matthew 23, and please have it open, we're going to have to do some work in that text. From Matthew 23, we are looking at the hallmarks of the hypocrite and then hope for the hypocrite. Hallmarks and then hope. We start with the hallmarks. First hallmark of a hypocrite. The hypocrite lays a burden on others. Jesus says of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Matthew 23 verse 4, They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and they put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. In those days, if if you were loading up a pack horse or a donkey, you would want to tie that package into a neat kind of manageable package. 
so that it was so that the animal would be able to cope. If you didn't, the load would be both heavy and cumbersome. It's a bit like um, moving a cabinet, cabinets full of books, heavy as anything, but then you forget to lock the drawers and the doors. So now you're picking up this thing. Not only is it backbreaking, but it's so awkward because the drawers keep sliding open, things keep falling out. Anyone can identify with that. I've moved five times in the last ten years. I have some sense of what that's like. That's the kind of burden the hypocrite places on others. Compare that to Jesus. You remember from a few weeks ago? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Compare it to Jesus' friend of sinners who waded into the Jordan River, that river polluted by the sin of his people. But he waded in to show his solidarity with sinners, even though he himself knew no sin. Compare it to Jesus who lifted the weight of the sin of the whole world up onto that cross, carried it for us. Jesus lifts the burden of sin. The hypocrite wants to put it back on. Is that you? Do you have an eye for other people's sin? Does it come naturally to you? Do you get just a little bit of pleasure, just a little bit of pleasure when another person falls or their sin is publicly exposed, especially if you've had an argument with that person recently? Do you have a kind of a tabloid Twitter culture playing out in your own heart? You know what that's like? Someone falls, you want to be there as the prosecution, the jury, the judge, to expose them, to rip strips off them. A lot of our political dialogue seems to be like this. Very quick to point out the sins on the other side, not quite as quick to see our own. Do you insist that others must live up to your moral standard? Are you approaching the sin of others as if you are not a sinner yourself? I think that's the simplest way for us to think about this thing. Are you approaching the sin of others as if you are not a sinner yourself. It's a question for all of us here, starting with the man in the pulpit. Are you a hypocrite? Just in case you're quick to answer no, uh, J.K. Jerome captures this hypocritical spirit beautifully, playfully, in his book, Three Men in a Boat. And I quote, he says, I lived with a man once who would loll on a sofa and watch me doing things. Now, I'm not like that. I can't sit still and see another man slaving and working. I want to get up and superintend and walk around with my hands in my pockets and tell him what to do. It's my energetic nature. I can't help it. Hypocrite lays a burden and then doesn't lift a finger to help. Second hallmark of a hypocrite. The hypocrite seeks the favor of men. Verse 5. Just look at how clear and plain Jesus is in the first half of verse 5. Everything they do is done for people to see. Can you get more straightforward than that? Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide, the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. 
I know exactly what you're thinking. You're thinking, what on earth is a phylactery? It sounds like a dinosaur or maybe a medical procedure. You know, it's really not looking good. He's probably going to have to go in for a phylactery. It's none of that. So Deuteronomy chapter 6 is really gives us insight into what this is all about. You don't, don't need to turn there. These words, um, I'll read them for you. They, they're probably familiar. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. A phylactery was a very literal interpretation of bind these commandments on your forehead. So it was a little box containing scriptures that you wore on your forehead. Now the Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' day were making their little boxes into bigger boxes. That's what they were doing. Why would you do that? It's not as though someone is going to miss the little box strapped on your forehead. Well, Jesus tells us why you do it. You do it, you make that little box bigger so that people can see your box is bigger than others. Same thing with the tassels. Tassels were on the edge of the garment to remind the wearer to follow God's commandments. Making them longer than average says to the world, I take God's commandments more seriously than average. Same thing with the places of honor at the feasts and in the synagogues. Those chairs were not necessarily more comfortable. To love them is to love being seen sitting in them. Same thing with the greetings in the marketplaces. The marketplace greeting in that culture was a way of communicating the social hierarchy. So to be greeted first uh, signaled your importance. And the longer, the more elaborate the greeting, the more important you were. The hypocrites were a bit like Idi Amin. This is his self-proclaimed official title. You ready? His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal, Al-Hajj, Dr. Idi Amin Dada, VC, DSO, MC, Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the seas, and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general and in Uganda in particular. <laughs> you don't want to bump into Idi in the marketplace. You're going to spend half your morning just greeting the guy. Hypocrites were a bit like that. Even the name rabbi means my lord. So there's no confusion about seniority in this conversation. They love that name. Of course, the louder you said it, the better, because what's the goal? The goal is to be seen. What are we doing to be seen? Just think about it. Is there anything even vaguely Christian that you are doing? So maybe, maybe you've shared your faith. Maybe you've given some money to the church. Maybe it's an act of kindness. Anything like that. And you just had to let Martin know. You just had to let it slip out somehow. Or maybe if it's not Martin, maybe it's someone else on staff or, or a Christian that you respect or your life group. Just had to let it slip, slip out. Why is that? Why do we do that? Let's flip it on its head. What if no one could ever know? Would you still do it? 
And if you did it, would it give you the same joy? Could you give a million rand to the church and tell absolutely no one? Not even your spouse. I'm not suggesting you do that. (laughs) But imagine, imagine if no one ever knew. You would remain completely anonymous. Does it still give you the same kick? Or perhaps, are we doing these things to be seen by people? Third hallmark, the hypocrite shuts the door of heaven. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to. Shut the door is probably a little bit weak. It's more like lock the door or bolt the door shut. How are the hypocrites locking the door in people's faces? Well, if the key to the door is Jesus and you throw away the key and you give people some other key, do you see that you're effectively locking the door in their face? You're keeping them locked on the outside. What key do hypocrites then and now offer in place of Jesus? My system of morality. My orthodoxy. My version of the Christian faith. My systematic theology. My way or the highway. So if you keep yourself pure in these particular areas, let's say sex and language, well then you're in. If you hold to these particular doctrines, my view on, say, baptism, or end times, or church government, or the place of Israel, well, then you're in. Jesus has little to do with it. We need to hear this. When you replace Jesus as the key to the kingdom, and you offer some other key, you are effectively locking the door of heaven in people's faces. Not only that, you are also opening up the door to hell. That's the fourth hallmark. The hypocrite opens the door to hell. Verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Winning converts to some man-made system of spiritual advancement, some religious tower of Babel, some merit and performance hierarchy. That was just another way of opening the door to hell for those you were claiming to save. In fact, those new converts, zealous and naive as all new converts are, were twice as much sons of hell. Why? All that passion, but directed in the wrong direction. If you convert somebody to your school of religious morality, where the curriculum is based on behaviors that you just happen to have mastered, and it ignores behaviors that you just happen to struggle with or keep separate and hidden, well, then you're inviting that person into hell. I mean, it's a sobering, scary thought, isn't it? If I'm converting someone to my brand of Christianity and not to Jesus Christ, I'm opening the door to hell for them. That's scary. We find a fifth hallmark in verses 16 to 23. 
the hypocrite majors and minors. The hypocrite makes small things into big things and big things into small things. At this point, Jesus calls them blind guides because they claim very loudly to know the way, and yet they are leading people into the ditch. They're quibbling over whether you swear by the temple or the gold in the temple, whether you swear by the altar or the sacrifice on the altar. But Jesus points out, verse 20 to 22, that the decor in your oath counts for very little. What matters is your integrity before God and others. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, just let your yes be yes, and let that be the end of it. Don't be swearing by all of these things. Just let your yes be yes. But the spirit of hypocrisy is searching, constantly searching the law for limits and loopholes. Instead of asking what will please God. The spirit of hypocrisy wants to control and so it obsesses over the minutiae of the law rather than enjoying the God who gave the law. Now why do we do this? Why do we operate this way? Let's think about it. Rules I can keep. Rules I can even master. I can game the system. With rules I can advance by competing against others. Rules give me a sense of achievement and security and social standing over and above others. But God himself, well, he's not so easily manipulated, is he? The spirit of hypocrisy drives you to give 10% of your garden herbs to God. Even while in the same week you overlook a bribe, you hate your enemies, you ignore the beggar at the end of your road. Jesus says the herbs are fine. Keep going with the herbs. Just make sure that you love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself first. Don't strain out the gnat and then swallow the camel. Don't reduce the whole duty of discipleship to having the right version of the Bible. KJV, nothing else. And then neglect to love God with all your heart. Majoring in minors, that's the hypocrite. Sixth hallmark of the hypocrite. The hypocrite washes the outside, verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27. You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones and the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Hypocrites were fastidious about the ritual washing of cups and plates because they didn't want to be contaminated by anything unclean. The outside was clean, but the problem wasn't the outside. The problem was what was inside the cup, what was on the dish. That was the problem. Verse 25 again. But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Full of greed, again, that it's too kind a translation. The word actually means robbery. In other words, the hypocrites were finding a way to profit from this religious system of theirs. This for-profit scheme, whatever it was, was feeding their self-indulgent lifestyles. Now, we've seen that movie before, haven't we? It's playing out all around us. Faith as a kind of a pyramid scheme. We know it well. That's the cup and the dish. What about tombs? 
the people of Jerusalem in that day, wouldn't bury their dead in a dedicated cemetery. Uh, They didn't have dedicated cemeteries. They would bury their people on the outskirts of, of the city. Any contact with a grave under Jewish law would make a person ceremonially unclean. So as a kindness to pilgrims who were coming into the city and may accidentally bump into a grave, they would whitewash the tombs. The white, those whitewashed graves were, were not just functional, they were beautiful. But they didn't change the content of the grave itself. Dead bones, a rotting corpse. The hypocrite is whitewashed, beautiful on the outside. That's what hypocrisy is. It's all about projecting, presenting, play acting in this socialized Christian culture of ours. Playing an acceptable role. While on the inside, you're still a rotting corpse. It's the glamorous profile picture. The witty and exciting status update when in reality your life is just as mundane and sinful as anybody else's. Walt Disney put it like this. I'm not Walt Disney. I do a lot of things that Walt Disney wouldn't do. Walt Disney doesn't smoke. I smoke. Walt Disney doesn't drink. I drink. The hypocrite washes the outside. Finally, the hypocrite hates the truth. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were building tombs and they were decorating the graves of prophets and righteous uh, heroes of the faith who had been killed by a previous generation. So they were doing it to make a show of siding with those martyrs. But Jesus exposes the great irony. He says, those graves and tombs that you're building, they are monuments, sure enough. But they're not monuments to your innocence. They're monuments to your guilt. You're just confirming your own part in the death of the prophets, your own opposition to God's messengers, to God's truth. You are just as guilty as your forefathers of hating the truth. He concludes in verse 35, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the righteous Blood of, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So every recorded spilling of righteous blood from the beginning of the Old Testament with Abel right to the end of the Jewish Old Testament in two chronicles with Zechariah and everything in between, all of that guilt will come upon this generation that is busy building monuments to their own innocence. Why will it come upon this generation? Because they are about to kill the greatest prophet of all, Jesus himself. And so in verse 33, he calls them literally snakes and sons of snakes. They are destined for hell. Why is there such a violent clash between Jesus and this particular group? Because the hypocrite hates the truth. What's the truth they hate the most? What's the number one enemy of hypocrisy? The grace of God in Jesus Christ. His life and death mean that all that religion, every good work, all that accumulated merit is absolutely worthless in God's eyes. 
It's worthless. It's less than worthless. It's sin. That's what the cross says. Jesus wouldn't have to die if your goodness was enough. The cross says the outside of the cup is not clean enough. And the inside of the whitewashed tomb is still a rotting corpse. Jesus didn't just die for our sin. He died for our righteousness. He didn't just die for our secret sins. He died for our good works. You know, the things that we like to put on public display in the shop window of our lives. He died for those things. Because those things are such an offense to God when we bring them and say to the Father, now you owe me. I want the inheritance. And that is a truth the hypocrite just cannot bear. Because that means he's no better than the prodigal. The hypocrite would rather murder Jesus than face that truth. And of course, that's what they did. They so hated the grace of God in Jesus Christ that they killed him. They murdered him. Let's just consider the ground we've covered. What are the hallmarks of the hypocrites? The hypocrite lays a burden on others, seeks the favor of men, shuts the door of heaven and opens the door to hell by replacing Jesus with another key. Majors in minors, washes the outside of the tomb and the cup, hates the truth. Hypocrites are bad people. We want nothing to do with them, amen? <laughs> thing that stops me dead in my tracks in calling for an amen on that particular point is a billboard I saw outside of a church once. It read this, our church isn't full of hypocrites. There's always room for more. <laughs> if you look at that list, and we are honest with ourselves, let me just read it again. The hypocrite lays a burden on others, seeks the favor of men, shuts the door of heaven, and opens the door to hell by giving, by replacing Jesus as the key. Majors in minors, washes the outside, and hates the truth. You're going to find yourself somewhere on that list, aren't you? And finding yourself on that list is dangerous. It's a very dangerous place to be. Jesus' biggest argument was with hypocrites. Seven times in one chapter, he says, woe to you hypocrites. What hope can there possibly be for the hypocrite? Well, ironically enough, the hope is that seven times in one chapter, Jesus says, woe to you hypocrites. That word woe in the original doesn't just carry a serious warning. It does, but there's more. That word expresses the deepest possible regret and compassion. Woe. It's a cry from the soul. Woe. Perhaps it's a word that captures the feeling of a father who's pleading with his son to come inside and join the celebration. It's that kind of word. The seven woes are building towards verse 37, where we see God's heart for the hypocrite. Here's God's heart for the hypocrite. His heart for you, if you are feeling convicted of hypocrisy. 
Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Can you hear the compassion in that? A hen gathering her chicks under her wings. That's what he wants for you. That's God's heart for the hypocrite. To paraphrase one of the dead prophets, God does not delight in the death of a hypocrite, but that he should turn from his ways and live. That's God's heart for the hypocrite. Jesus longs to gather hypocrites to himself. The generation he spoke to on that day may be lost. But this generation, the generation he's speaking to this morning, there's still time for us. So how does it happen? How do you go from being a hypocrite to being a disciple of Jesus? How does that happen? Thankfully, in his mercy, the Lord Jesus tells us. Have a look at verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, at this point, you quite rightly say, that doesn't really help. I'm a hypocrite. How am I ever going to truly, truly humble myself? Instead of just making a show of humility, when on the inside I I still think I'm better than you. What is going to change me at that level? What is going to change my deceitful heart, my deepest desires? Because that's where the change needs to happen. The answer is right here, staring us in the face from verse 10 again. You have one instructor, the Christ, the Messiah. He's the greatest among you because his was the greatest act of service. He has been exalted because he truly humbled himself for our sakes. In Jesus, the hypocrite has been put to death. And in Jesus, the disciple rises to new life. You are free from the penalty of hypocrisy. Because of the cross, your hypocrisy cannot condemn you. God is just. With God, there is no double jeopardy. You are free. No shadow of a doubt. You are free. We need to hear this. Because we hear it and we don't hear it. You are free. Free from the penalty of your hypocrisy. Absolutely free. What did he say? He said, it is finished. God is done with your hypocrisy. He's dealt with it. You are free. You're free from the penalty. You're also free from the power of hypocrisy. Every false desire of the hypocritical heart is met in Jesus the things that motivate us to do the hypocritical things we do. Every false desire is met in the Lord Jesus. Let me ask you, why do you lay a burden on other people? Why do you do it? Well, we do it to feel righteous about ourselves, don't we? But you are righteous in Christ. 
You are more righteous than you could ever possibly imagine. You don't have to lay a burden on someone else to prove your righteousness. Why do you seek the favor of men? Well, because we want to feel worthy of love. But you are loved. Christ's love for you is as high as the heavens and as wide as the ocean. His love for you takes on the dimensions of the cross. You are more loved than you could ever possibly imagine. You don't have to seek the favor of men. Why do you hate the truth? Because grace exposes our sin and leaves our righteousness in tatters. But that same grace means that you and I are forgiven. And it motivates us to a life of true righteousness in Christ. It, the grace that saves us is the grace that moves us to change. This is what C.S. Lewis meant when he said, Everything we crucify will rise again. See, all those false desires, crucified, will rise again as true desires that are satisfied in Christ. All those misdirected desires are put to death and they will rise again to be fully satisfied in our Lord Jesus. And that means we are increasingly free from the power of our hypocrisy. To close, some of us here this morning are prodigals. And if that's you, you need to get your snout out of the pig's trough and you need to go home. Just go home. Your father is waiting for you. He wants to embrace you. He will cleanse you. He will clothe you in royal garments. He's got a, he's got a party waiting for you. Heaven will rejoice when you go home. If you're a prodigal this morning, get your face out of the pig's trough and go home. Your father's waiting to welcome you. For the rest of us, the surest sign that you're a hypocrite is that you won't admit it. Come to Jesus. He wants to gather you in. He wants to make you his disciple. Let's pray. Father, we plead with you this morning that you, in Christ Jesus on the basis of his precious blood, that you will forgive our hard-hearted hypocrisy, that you will forgive our play-acting, our pretending, forgive the show that we put on for each other, the way we put our good deeds and our clean living on display. Father, forgive this foolish game of look who's got it together. Help us to confront our hypocrisy. Expose it, Lord. Help us to see the sin on the inside of my cup, Help us to take it all to Jesus who bore the seven woes on our behalf. He went to hell for us. He opened the door to heaven for us. We praise his wonderful name. Make us into his disciples. Please, Father, we plead it. In the power of your spirit. Amen.